Now, this is a, it's a powerful section of scripture, but this is one of those sections where, you know, God could just say, I'm God, just shut up. But he doesn't do that. You know, when I was growing up, I think the question I asked my mother most often was, what's for supper? What's for supper? What's for supper? And my mother was one of the most patient, kind women you'll ever meet. But I remember a couple of occasions, I guess she got tired of hearing that. I said, Mom, what's for supper? She said, it doesn't matter. You're going to eat whatever I fix. <laughs> now, ladies, don't do that with your family. But Mama just kind of put me in my place. My dad, I, several times, he said, son, you ask a thousand questions. Why do I have to do this? Finally, he said, because what? I said so. Exactly. We've all heard that, haven't we? Because I said so. Now, God could very well do that in this section of Scripture. God could just say, because I said so. See, the problem we have as children is that often as children, we don't understand as much as our parents understand. And that's the way God designed it. That's the way God designed it. Our parents lead us and guide us. And the problem we have with the revelations of God's truth and God, particularly as we look at this morning's passage, the character of God, the problem we have is that we're children and God is our heavenly father. Again, this portion of Romans could just kind of put us in our place, but I want you to see that God does that, but it's not harsh. It's not harsh at all. It's done with great gentleness and mercy. When, when it comes to God, you know, who are we to question him? After all, he is God. And there's a theological word that is, we'll use. I don't try not to do much of that, but he is transcendent. God is so much greater than we are. He transcends even our thoughts. As a matter of fact, Isaiah tells us, my, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So all of us have to admit that we, there are things about God that we don't understand. And again, that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't remember a lot from seminary, but I remember a guy saying, you know, if we understood everything about God, we would be equal to God. And we're not. I, I like what my friend, Tim, uh, my friend Tim Orton in Sylacauga said, there is a God and it's not me. <laughs> I know two things. There is a God and it's not me. So we're going to talk about some deep things of, of God this morning. But there are things that God tells us, and they're for our own good, and they're important for us to understand, okay? But God is transcendent. He created us. Can you imagine that? We were but dust. Only God could make a man out of dust. And then only God could take a spare rib and turn it into a prime rib when God created a woman. That's for you ladies, okay? Yeah, God... Who are we to question him? And, and Pastor Colby will look at that, talking about the potter and the clay a little bit in more depth next, next Sunday. But what makes this even more difficult today is that the question we're going to be asking has to do with God's character. God's character. Is God just? Is God just? Let me read for us Romans nine fourteen. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? So there's the question, is God just? I like the translation where it says, is God righteous? Whoa, who are we to ask that question? Is God just? Paul says, may it never be. <laughs> For he says to Moses, I will have mercy 
on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we come to this portion of scripture, we come, Lord, depending on your mercy. Lord, we come as children to a father seeking to understand you even better. Lord, not for the purpose just of clarification, but for the purpose of devotion. God, that the more we understand, the more we love. And the more we love, the more we serve. And the more we serve, the more your name is made great among us. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord, to your word today, to see the great mercy and compassion of our almighty God. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 9 is a favorite chapter of a lot of people. You know, they're like, I can't wait till you get to Romans 9. I've heard, I can't wait till you get to Romans. But I've been around the block long enough to know that there are a lot of people who just try to avoid Romans 9. And it's not one of their favorite chapters. So whether you're all excited this morning or you're kind of, you know, how we're here. Let's see what he has to say. God's word still speaks for itself. And, you know, there, there's a tendency. I, I read this quote. I like this. Patrick Morley said years ago that we tend to worship the God that we've underlined in our Bible. Think about that. We see something we like about God. What, oh, I like that. Yeah, boy, get out the highway. And so, oh, I don't like that. Oh, I like that. We tend to worship the God we've underlined in our Bible. So what do we do? We create a God in our own image. We create a God in our own image, a God that we like. Now, when we come to a point and say that God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens those whom he desires, that's big. That's deep. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. As we said last week, as pastors, we're called to preach what the Bible says. To preach what the Bible says. We began last week looking at Romans 9, 1 through 13. We saw God's faithfulness. And the question asked there was primarily in verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Paul in the first eight chapters has set forth this glorious gospel. I mean, it is a glorious gospel. It's a gospel by faith. It's a gospel of the glory of God. As God's revealed himself to us. But when he comes to chapter 9, Paul says, you know, this is a glorious gospel. And remember verse one, chapter 1, verse 16? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul tells us in chapter 9 his love for the Jews. The priority of the Jews. But as Pastor Colby read, and we talked about last week, Jesus came into his own, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. The Jews were the one who persuaded the Romans to crucify Christ. The Jews were the ones who continually harassed Paul in his preaching, followed him everywhere he went, and they beat him, they stoned him, and they wanted him dead. But yet Paul tells us in verses 1 through 5 of his great passion 
for the Jews, for the great passion he had for the Jews. Colby and I talked again this week, and, and he made a statement. I'm going to quote Pastor Colby. This text is not an argument to be had, but an affection that must be felt. That's what Paul is doing here. He's communicating to us, not theological arguments, but he's communicating to us a passion for lost people, a passion that he is feeling deeply in his heart. Look, look back there, chapter nine, verse two. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So as we get into the deep truths of nine, that's where they come from. These were, that's where these truths spring from. It's a great passion and a desire for the loss a desire to see people, to be on mission with God, to know God, find community, and to live on mission. As, as we're on mission with God, we begin to see what Paul found out. It's not a popular message. Paul got beat up. Paul was stoned. We see all his uh, exploits there as he told the Corinthians how many times he was stoned, how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was starving and imprisoned. Why did he do that? Because he was convinced that God had a people. Martin Luther said this, who hath not known passion, cross, and travail of death cannot treat foreknowledge without injury and inward enmity toward God. Somebody said, Keith, all you ever do is quote dead people. Of course, Martin Luther's dead. What's he saying? He said, you know, unless you've been on the front lines, Unless you know what it's like to have passion, the cross symbolizing death and being near death, then when it comes to the foreknowledge of God, you're going to be offended. The foreknowledge of God is what gave the apostle Paul hope. You remember God in essence says one time, Paul, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, go right back in there because I got many people in this city. They don't know it yet. You don't know it yet, but they're already there. So it's this idea of the foreknowledge of God that gave Paul confidence, but it was also the source of his passion. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we did last week, are we burdened for the lost? What would we do to see them saved? Paul said, I wish I could take their punishment. I wish I could be cut off for the sake of the Jews. Then he deals with the question, has God failed? Has God's word failed or been nullified? And we said, no. Because God's promises were unconditional. We see that in verse 11. Look at 9-11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice or his election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God's purposes are going to stand even though the Jews had rejected the gospel. And so Paul's point was not everyone who is born a Jew is a Jew. We saw that in verses six and seven. So we have to understand that God's purposes will stand. His promises are unconditional. And they're not simply made uh, genetically to all those who physically descend from Abraham. Again, salvation, as we saw last week, is not based on descent. Just because you were born a Jew doesn't mean that you have salvation. Just because you were born a Baptist born into a Christian home, does not make you a Christian. He says it's not by bloodline. And he said, and then he gave the example of uh, Jacob and Esau, it's not by deeds. Before even they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, God made a choice. So it's not based on our descent, it's not based on our deeds, but salvation comes to people of faith. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. There's the key, faith. Not all Israel is Israel. Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Ishmael, the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, God had a purpose for one and not for the other. Out of their loins came two nations. One was destined for divine blessing and the other was destined for divine judgment. Paul says Isaac and Jacob were God's sovereign choice to fulfill his purposes. We ended last week with verse 13 where Paul quotes Malachi 1. And he says, uh, speaking to Israel, I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation. One nation for divine blessing, one nation for divine judgment. God made a choice. As soon as Paul makes that statement in verse 13, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Just like in many churches around America today, you could hear the boos and the hisses. That's not true. That's not true. Boos and hisses. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Let me tell you, Paul is a master teacher. And as a master teacher, he, he anticipates the objections. He asks the questions before the audience had the chance to ask. Now, I've never been a debate in a debate, never been smart enough to debate. But I understand that's one of the smart things you do in debate. You, ask, you answer the question that the other person is most likely to ask. And so that's what Paul does. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Verse 14, what can we say then? Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice, injustice with God, is there? So the question asks, we get to our outline. Is God just? Is God just? Is God just? Is there unrighteousness with God? See, the question's a good one for us to consider. See, the question that Paul asks gives us clarification about what Paul was saying. So I want you to follow me this morning, okay? The question that Paul asks gives us a deeper understanding of what Paul was saying. The question implies that God willfully chose Jacob and not Esau. So we have the question of justice. He chose one and not the other. So many people would say, hey, that's not fair. And we're big on fairness, aren't we? If you don't believe it, just watch an umpire miss a call at a baseball game. <laughs> that's, he made, that's not right. I got, almost got thrown out of a little. Anyway, that's not fair. You missed it. Play by the rules. You're missing a good game. Oh, come on, ref. Yeah, we've all done that because we want fairness. Well, earlier in chapter 5, Paul asked, uh, he explained to us salvation by grace. Paul explains in chapter 5, salvation by grace through faith. And then in chapter 6, he asks another question. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? See, whenever we, he began to talk about grace and being saved by faith, people are going to say, you know, we have no category for grace. I mean, that sounds too good to be true. If what you're saying is true, Paul, that we're saved by grace through faith, 
then let's just sin like we, we want to. Let's just live like there's no tomorrow and we're all going to be okay. So Paul asked the question in 6.1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? No. You see what Paul does? He, he anticipates our question. When he started talking about something as radical as grace, <laughs> that you could be saved not by your works, but by your faith, that really is amazing. Somebody ought to write a song about that. I mean, it's amazing that God could show us grace. But do you, know, do you see in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul anticipates that question. Well, if we're saved by grace, let's just live like we want to. And Paul answers that emphatically, may it never be. So that's what he's doing here. If God chose Jacob and not Esau, is God unjust? The question tells us what Paul is trying to communicate to us. Is God unjust? See, there would be no question of justice if, like some people believe, when it comes to God's election, that God simply knew beforehand what decision Jacob was going to make and what decision Esau was going to make. See, there are some people, you know, that's how they want to interpret God's foreknowledge or God's choosing, like we talked about in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Their thinking is that God looks down through the tunnel of history and he saw what was going to happen. So he knew Jacob would be a believer and he knew Esau would not be a believer. Now, if that's what happened, nobody would be upset. There's no injustice with that. That's not, I mean, God's just smart. <laughs> so smart, he knows the future. Such a good prophet, he can, he can see what everybody's going to do. If that's what foreknowledge and election is all about. There's no injustice with that. But Paul says, we have to answer the question. Because God chose one and not the other. Obviously, Paul is saying God's foreknowledge is much more than just knowing what's going to happen. Again, we talked about that in Romans 8. Knowing, foreknowledge, to foreknow someone in the scripture implies an intimate knowledge. To know Adam knew his wife. Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. God's foreknowledge of us tells us he called us before the foundation of the world. He loved us before we were even created. That's what he said in verse 13. Jacob, God loved Jacob before he was even born, before he'd done anything good or bad. Now, that's a truth that's hard to swallow for some. And that's why we say that's not fair. That's not fair. See, when people are confronted with the sovereignty of God, most of the time they get angry. And that, that's what happens. That's what Luther said. There's an enmity toward God. Because how could God do that? Then when people are confronted with the sovereignty of God, after they get over their anger, they, they say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why would God do that? And then the second thing they say is, well, if that's true, who are we to resist God's will? Colby will talk about that next week, verse 19. Do you see the logical flow from the question? That's not fair. Well, if it is true, who can resist his will? We don't have to do anything. What can anybody do? So don't miss the point. Because the question of fairness is raised, we know that Paul is not teaching that God just knew beforehand what decision Jacob and Esau were going to make. The question is very revealing because Paul is saying that God purposely chose Jacob. And so we have to ask the question, 
Is there injustice with God? Is God unrighteous? Is God unjust for not basing his love on our merit? (laughs) Is that unjust of God for him basing his love for us, not on our performance, but on his own divine love? May it never be. Is God unjust? The question, no. The question is justice. The answer in verses 15 and 16 is mercy. Look at this, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The question is all about justice, but the answer is all about what? Talk to me, what? Mercy, mercy. Paul doesn't even mention the word justice. Paul, do you understand the question? We're talking about justice. Paul's a brilliant brilliant man with a brilliant mind. He understood the question. The question's all about justice. The answer is all about mercy. God's dealing with his people is not based on justice, but it's on mercy and compassion. Now think about those two words, mercy. God gives us mercy. The word itself implies that we are in a heap of trouble. Who needs mercy? The guilty, the helpless. And so God gives us what we don't deserve, and that is mercy. Now, compassion, as Briscoe Darling says, is another matter in tar. Compassion is a feeling that we all have of emotion. It, it, it comes from our inner feeling, you know, to, to love. It's, it's love expressed. But mercy is given to the undeserved. You don't give mercy to somebody that doesn't need it. But the fact that God would give us and deal with us in mercy and compassion reveals to us that we're in trouble. Lamentations 3.22. Jeremiah says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. <laughs> Do you see that? We ought to be consumed. Our future ought to be consumption, but it's not. Why? Because of God's mercy. That's what we deserve. Because his compassions, there's the other word, his love for us fails not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, the first thing we ought to do every morning, we get up and see the sun. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for another day. I love that verse, and I think it's 2 Peter, where it says that regard the patience of God as salvation. Every time we see another day, that means somebody has an opportunity to be saved. Every time the sun rises, God's given somebody somewhere another opportunity to be saved because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. So God deals with us with mercy and compassion. Here, Paul points back to Exodus 33, where, look at verse 15, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Now, this is right after Exodus 32, where Moses has been on the mountain with God. He comes back and, and poor Aaron, Aaron's not my fault. They gave me gold earrings. They gave me gold statues. I threw them in the fire and out came this calf. I don't know how that happened. Right. And they began to worship that calf. And so God destroyed 3,000 people that day. 
but not after Moses had begged, God, please forgive. God, please forgive your people. God destroyed 3,000 people. God said, because of that, Moses, you're on your own. I'm going to send an angel, and that angel is going to lead you into the promised land. Moses said, Lord, I love, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Moses said, God, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. I remember praying that prayer when we were coming to Tuscaloosa. God, I've been studying it. If you're not going with us, we don't want to go. But God says, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. So the actual quote comes from Exodus 33, 19, and this is the context. Moses said to God, Moses, I want, God, I want to see your face. You're talking about audacity. God, Moses wanted to see God's face. Show me your glory. The Lord said, no. But Exodus 30, 33, 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. So Moses was hidden, where? In the cleft of the rock. Somebody ought to write a song about that. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock. And God says, I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, we could spend all day here, but let me just tell you what I got out of that. There are some things about God that we just can't handle. Do you understand that? There are some things about God that we're just not intended to handle. Not just the fact that we can't see his face and his glory, but I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Moses, there is a God and it's not you. (laughs) Church, that's, that's the situation. God could put us in our place. So, when it comes to God, who really wants justice? Who among us really wants what we deserve? Because what do we deserve? Death, punishment. The wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What do we all deserve? What do we want? What do we need? Mercy, compassion. Salvation is of grace. Salvation is a result of God's mercy toward us. Is God unjust for loving us, not based on our merit? (laughs) No, he's not unjust, but he's just amazing that he would do that. Not at all. Every bit of God's love is unmerited and free. Some would say, look at verse 16. Well, I'm a good person. I've been in church all my life. I've been running a good race. Salvation is about doing good deeds and being a good person and earning your salvation so that it depends on the man who runs. What is verse 16? No, it doesn't. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Thankfully, our salvation does not depend on our will or our works. Our salvation is free, it's gracious from God because of his mercy. This is consistent with John's gospel. Kobe read it a while ago. He came to his own, John 1, 11, And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, 
not just because they're the children of Abraham, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Isn't that consistent with the gospel? We must be born again, born of the Spirit. Again, immediately somebody will say, well, then what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond to this? Does this mean mean that we don't have to do anything? Who can resist his will? Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist? Again, we'll see that next week. And I want to be as loving, and again, to say we've got all that, no. But if we struggle with God's fairness in the terms of Jacob and Esau and the purposes of God and God's election, if we, if we struggle with that, and we should, we should. We should look at it. We should study it. But as I've looked at it over the years, I've realized, and especially this morning, that the category is not justice. The category is mercy. The category is mercy. The only thing we could possibly have to complain about is that God, for some reason, gives to some people something they don't deserve. That's forgiveness. Why would God do that? Why would God save me? While he gives to others precisely what they do deserve, they get justice. That's the only thing we could say about God is that you are entirely too gracious. We can say that, but we can't say, God, you are unjust. You are unrighteous. You're unrighteous because you punish sin. No, that's God's character. That's what God said he would do. But God, you are gracious because you forgive sinners. Years ago, David Platt, who is our president of the International Mission Board, was asked a missions question. I guess all missionaries hear this question. They said, Mr. Platt, what about that innocent African deep in the heart of Africa? What about that innocent African who's never heard about Jesus? When he dies, will he go to heaven? David Platt said, yes, he will. An innocent African deep in the heart of Africa, if he dies, he will go to heaven, even though he's never heard about Jesus. He said, there's just one problem. There is no innocent man deep in the heart of Africa. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is just to punish sin, and he must punish sin. No one gets injustice. God is just. Esau got justice. Jacob got mercy. Esau got justice. Jacob got mercy. The question is, how can God be merciful to sinners? Why would he be merciful to sinners? And the answer to that question is God's glory. So that God can be glorified in our salvation. His grace brings us glory, brings him glory. His grace to us brings him glory. If we could save ourselves, where would God's glory be? We're saved by grace through faith to the glory of God. See, not one of us can stand before God on our own merit. But we as believers in Christ can and will stand before him in his righteousness, not ours, in his right, Christ's righteousness, which is ours by faith because of God's mercy, because of God's compassion. So then it does not depend, verse 16, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The question of justice is answered with mercy. The explanation, Paul says, verse 17 and 18, is the sovereign purposes of God. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name, that my name might become proclaimed, might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardened whom he desires. Back in 1978, (laughs) my junior year, I, I was involved with a ministry here on campus called the Navigators. Anybody ever heard of Navigators? Not sailors, it's a Christian ministry. And the guy who discipled me was a guy named Gary Leaf. And Gary and I met, I think it was Tuesday mornings, over at Wright's Restaurant in the Strip Mall in Alberta City. Y'all remember that? Over there, that place? We ate for breakfast. And one of the things Gary asked me to do is he discipled me. We did a Bible study on the book of Exodus. And we began to study, you know, as God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And as I, I began to read that, I remember being baffled. I was baffled. Why would God tell Moses to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. But Moses, I'm going to harden his heart. You're not going to be successful, but you go anyway. I said, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. You go back and read it for yourself. It says initially Pharaoh had a hardened heart. His heart was hard. And then it says specifically, God hardened his heart. So does it make sense that God would send Moses to Pharaoh to tell him with a a message, let my people go. But Moses, I'm going to be working against you. I'm going to harden his heart. And he's not going to say yes. Again, the Bible says that Pharaoh was a proud man. He had a hard heart. And it's one of those things I heard a lot of commentators, you know, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. The same rain that brings the grass also brings the weeds. You know, that, that the, the gospel, when it's preached many times, it brings forth fruit in some and it hardens the hearts of others. But God said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why would he do that? God tells us, I'm going, I am going, he says here, for this very purpose. I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. See, it became clear that God had a purpose for Pharaoh's resistance. He performed nine miraculous signs before the 10th sign, which was the angel of death from which we get what? The Passover. The Passover. The angel of death was coming. It was coming to every house, Jew and Egyptian, unless you had the blood on the doorpost. That was the 10th miraculous sign. The Passover is a result of that 10th miracle. If Pharaoh hadn't suggested the first time, if he said, yes, we wouldn't have the Passover. We wouldn't have the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. Without the 10th sign, we would not have the Passover feast, which points us to Jesus, who is our Passover. That's interesting. To me, the most interesting plague was the frogs. Do you remember that one? The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house. Ladies, wouldn't you love that? These frogs are going to go into your house and into your bedroom and in your be- on your bed and in your ovens and into your bowls. Can you imagine frogs? But that's not the funny part or strange part to me. The strange part was Moses, and I quote, said this to Pharaoh. The honor is yours. Tell me when shall I entreat for you that the frogs be destroyed? 
You tired of these frogs? I'll get rid of them. When do you want them out of here? Pharaoh said what? Tomorrow. (laughs) Go read it for yourself. Just give me one more night with these frogs. That's all I ask. Just one more night with these frogs. I'm kind of getting into this. Are you serious, Pharaoh? Tomorrow? But God had a purpose. God had a purpose for the water turning to blood, the frogs, the flies, the boils, the hail. All this were to prove his power and ultimately to make his name great. God is a God of justice and God is a God of purpose. That's Paul's explanation for why God does what he does. His purpose in Pharaoh was twofold, to demonstrate his power and to make his name great. As we close, church, just because God doesn't let us in on all his secrets, all the secrets of his purposes, it doesn't mean that God is unjust. It doesn't mean God's unjust. We've already been told that God causes all things to work together for our good. We can hang our hat on that. We can have absolute assurance that God is just, God is righteous, and that God will work for our good and his glory. Because of Pharaoh's hard heart, the Jews were instructed to observe the Passover. Jesus performed the last Passover feast on the night before he died. We no longer observe the Passover, but now we have what? The Lord's Supper. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. His body was broken as he bore our sin in his body. This morning, if your life is filled with fear and worry and anxiety, maybe your God is too small. Maybe you're trying to handle this all on your own. The gospel says, come to Jesus. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will not turn them away. That if we will confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. And through Jesus, you can know the God of the universe. That's an invitation to all men everywhere. God calls men and women, boys and girls, to himself through the gospel. See the power and glory of God, of, see the power and glory of the God of the Bible. Come to him. How can we pray for you this morning? Let's stand together for our time of invitation. How can we pray for you? Maybe there's some real source of fear and anxiety in your life and you need someone to pray with you. Maybe you need to come as the scriptures command us to come to examine our lives before we come to the Lord's table so that we will not eat in an unworthy manner. We come to confess our sin and to get our hearts right with God before we come to the table. Maybe your greatest need today is to come to Christ for salvation. You're not sure if you're a Christian. You're not sure that you are a child of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe on his name. Come this morning and give your heart to Christ, the one who died to give us life. Let's respond to God's word as we sing together.